Here we go. Joe, thank you. Thank you for being here. Really appreciate it, man. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. This is a fascinating subject. I've been really looking forward to talking to you because uh, the conscious mind and how we how we evolved our conscious mind, how we have our conscious mind, I mean, that is uh, one of the more unique things about being a person. It is. How did it happen? Oh, <laughs> well, it's only a four billion year story as the uh, subtitle. We the book have some goes. time. Yeah, <laughs> so shall I tell you how I got sure. into it and the, where, where, how I ended up thinking about that problem? So I've been working on how the brain detects and responds to danger for most of my scientific career. Uh, a little bit before that, I'd actually studied consciousness in these people who have their brain split apart to control epilepsy, called split brain patients. So I got interested in consciousness and also in how behaviors that might be produced non-consciously uh, affect what we know about ourselves. So we see ourselves doing something and then we kind of consciously build that into our narrative of what we are. But a lot of what we do, we do non-consciously. And when we interpret it, that kind of uh, solidifies the fact that you have a non-conscious system that's controlling your behavior when in fact you you didn't do it, but that system did. So you got to make sense of it and generate an explanation, a narrative. So that uh, that was where I got started and I tried to figure out, well, what would be some kinds of non-conscious systems? And said, so, well, maybe emotion systems are producing behaviors that we don't fully understand. And I started studying that and ended up uh, figuring out how this part of the brain called the amygdala receives information about the environment and then controls, orchestrates all the responses, fight-flight kinds of responses to help you protect yourself. And the, um, you know, after many years of doing that, I started asking, well, how far back does this ability to detect and respond to danger go? We know that bugs and flies can do that. And research had been done showing that uh, bugs and flies have certain molecules in their brain that are important in these kinds of protective defensive behaviors and including the ability to learn about them and store those as memories. So it's easier to work on those little tiny um, um, invertebrates than it is to do studies in a complex brain, even like a rat brain, which is pretty complex. Um, so given that what these people had discovered about invertebrates I and others who were studying uh, mammals decided to see if the same molecules might be involved in mammalian learning. And in fact, it was. So now that raises the question. You've got the same molecules doing the same thing, the same molecules, same genes doing the same thing in ancient invertebrates and in, uh, in animals like us. So you ask where, back in time, is the ancestor that made that possible? You know, if we've got the same genes, either it kind of happens spontaneously separately or there's a common ancestor. And indeed, there's a common ancestor. And that goes back to the first organism, first animal that had a bilateral body, which means it had a left, right, front, and a back, uh, and a top and a bottom. So it has kind of three-dimensional sides. Before that, there were animals like jellyfish that were radial, but no front and back. They just have a, a top and a bottom. And before that, there are sponges, which have no front, back, top, bottom. They're just kind of randomly organized. So that's kind of the, that's the story of animals, sponges to jellyfish to these bilateral animals. So the ancestor, uh, the, the, the bilateral animal that we're talking about, gave rise to those two lines, one 
that became all these invertebrates like flies and bugs and snails and octopus and all those things, and another to animals like us, vertebrates, all the um, fish, reptiles, mammals, birds, and so forth. So those are two separate lines that inherited these genes that make the memory and defensive behavior possible. So you say, well, how far back does it stop there? And no, it doesn't because you can find those genes on through jellyfish and then keep going into single-cell organisms. Now, these are like protozoa, uh, things that give you intestinal um, they're intestinal parasites, so they can you know, give you upset stomach. And um, things like amoeba, paramecia that you might have heard of in you know, biology class in high school or something. Um, these have no nervous system, and yet they detect and respond to danger. They learn about their environment. They do all these sorts of things. And where do they come from? Well, if you go all the way back to where they came from, an even simpler kind of organism, st still single cell, of course, like bacterial cells. Now, these guys go back to the beginning of life. The first cell that ever lived some 3.7 billion years ago that gave rise to the entire history of life was a bacterial-like cell that started dividing. Now, what's interesting, that cell that started dividing is the mother of every bacterial cell that ever lived. So that cell is, it's, it's more like it's, re, you know, that cell is still alive because it's, they reproduce by cell division. So that cell, cell just keeps reproducing. And part of that first cell ever is still with us today in all the bacterial cells that are, that are around. Uh, it's kind of a mind-blowing thing. Isn't it's it? incredibly mind-blowing. <laughs> Do we have any idea why the first cell decided to divide? Well, it, this I shouldn't say it's the first cell that decided to divide. This, it's the first cell. Bacterial cell? It's the first cell that was able to, to sustain life long enough to give off offspring that could sustain and sustain and sustain. Uh -huh. So there were probably lots of experiments before a kind of cell or a kind of group of cells had the right stuff to be able to do that. So they, those others never made it because they didn't have quite enough of what it took to be a cell that could do that. So the first cell, I mean, it, it's kind of a hypothetical cell. It's called LUCA, the last universal common ancestor of life. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> and that, so that's about 3.7, 3.8 billion years ago. Um, but it could have been a bunch of cells, you know, a collection of cells, cell types, uh, that, that one of which then, you know, populated all of life. The weird thing about life is not just that it's different and it varies so much, but that it's it's ever increasing in its complexity. Well, if you go back to the single cell and then you come all uh -huh. the way to today to a person, right? Like, what a weird yeah. sort of transformation. But, you know, it's dangerous to talk about as if we're moving towards some kind of goal. You know, like right. Is it that, dangerous? that we are the goal. But well, we're not, not the goal. The, I don't think we're the goal. No, we're not. We're definitely not the I, goal. I've, I've been more and more thinking that artificial <laughs> life is the goal. Mm hmm. Well, th I mean, there's no goal of life. Right, of course. There's, there's survival is the only goal of every organism. And that's, uh, that's what that first cell was able to do, is to generate a set of biological properties that could st sustain itself. 
long enough to reproduce. That's all you have to do. You have to live long enough to reproduce. And to do that, you have to have energy resources. So you have to incorporate nutrients. You've got to balance your fluids. Otherwise, you, know, you have to keep your eye on straight or you, the, the cell will get too big and explode or get too small and collapse. You've got to thermoregulate because all of these things depend on the right kind of internal temperature. And you have to reproduce. Those are the, the survival requirements of a cell, but they're also the survival requirements of a human. So the same things that a bacterial cell has to do to live through the day and create a species is exactly what we do every day to reproduce ourselves. We have to eat, drink, defend against danger, uh, incorporate nutrients and balanced fluids and ions that way, uh, defend, you know, reproduce. And so that was the mind-blowing thing. See, I wrote the whole three-quarters of the book as a scientific journalist because I didn't know any of this, this stuff. I had to just learn it. Uh, and it was a lot of fun, but it took a long time. <laughs> I would imagine. When, when you think about the original Luca and then human beings, do you ever try to extrapolate? Do you ever try to like keep the, the process rolling in your mind and see where where's this going to go? Oh, yeah. So at the end of the book, I paint a not-so-rosy picture of where oh, it's Jesus. going. <laughs> well, yeah, but... So let's talk about the end of the book. So okay. um, I you know, say, okay, well, our, we have these two kinds of, of uh, significant experiences in our lives that, uh, that occupy the human mind. One is the kind that uh, we can call an awareness of facts. You know, I, this thing is here. And the other is what we might call... Um, a self-awareness where it's, it's me that is aware that that is a bottle. So that's a, that's a higher level. And that is what appears to be unique to the human mind, the ability to represent the self as a subject. In other words, to have these subjective experiences that have a personal past. It's not just the past, but your past. You lived it. And a personal present and a potential future that you can imagine different scenarios of you existing in in the future. So that requires, uh, I mean, that's called autonoetic consciousness, the ability to, to self-know about where you are in time. And it depends, this is an idea that was proposed by a guy named Endel Tolving, a very distinguished psychologist who's uh, retired now. But um, his idea was that um, the unique aspect of, of the human mind is mental time travel, the ability to project ourselves in the past, present, and future. And without that kind of consciousness, we're limited to kind of factual information. Something is there. You know, that might, I might be able to say, oh, food is there, or drink is there, or a sexual partner is there, but not necessarily that I want that food. I want, you know, you might have a kind of biological urge towards it. Now, from the outside, it looks like everything we do is intentional and willful. So I think I'm controlling my behavior. You think you're controlling yours. I see you do something that I might have done in a similar situation. I think you intentionally control that. We see a dog doing something that would be similar to what we do. We think we know why the dog is doing that because it had some intention. But the fact is, if we start taking these things apart in the brain, we see that the systems that control very simple behaviors 
are not the ones that are doing all this high-level conscious thought. Take the example of uh, the area I've worked on for all these years, which is threat detection. Um, now, the, this part of the brain called the amygdala is key to the detection and response to threat in a kind of basic sense. Um, you know, a threat comes up, you freeze if there's a snake, for example. Um, now, it's all, because of that, it's been assumed that the reason you freeze is because you're afraid. And therefore, that the amygdala is also making the fear because the amygdala experiences the fear and that's why you produce the response. But I've, for, for the longest time and throughout most of my career, I've said the amygdala does not consciously experience fear. And yet my work has been used to kind of sell and, uh, and defend this idea of the amygdala is the brain's fear center. And I think that's completely wrong. The Why do you think it's been misinterpreted? It's a long, complicated uh, story, but it, you know, it's, it, partly it's my fault because I was not uh, as vigilant as I should have been when I was describing it. See, what I did was I'd, I would talk about the amygdala as a non-conscious state of fear, non-conscious implicit fear. Um, and I, I would say that, well, the neocortex is where we consciously experience fear, and those are separate. But that was too complicated. The, you know, the journalists kind of ignored it, and it, was just, it just became the amygdala as the brain's fear center. Even the scientists ignored it because, you know, we were studying. And, you know, I, I kind of gave up after one and said, okay, we talk about it in terms of fear. Um, because, you know, that there was a lot of money to be um, directed towards research if you were studying fear and how you could treat that. But I think it's, you know, it's been kind of a – a wrong path because it's led to the development of medications that don't really work. So all the big companies are getting out of the, of the anti-anxiety business, anti-fear business, because people still feel fearful or anxious when they take them. You mean like Xanax, things along those yeah, lines? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Companies uh, are getting out of the Xanax business? Um, benzos, Xanax, yeah. I mean, they're not they're either that or they're repurposing them to, for other purposes, you know. But so what happens is you, the way these things, you know, the, these things, the basic drugs were discovered in the 60s, uh, almost accidentally in some cases, you know, not rather than by some hypothesis. So the only thing that's been discovered since then is more versions of the same thing with, you know, slightly fewer side effects. But there's been no new discovery of a new kind of drug that's going to help people. And why is that? Well, the, the way the drugs are discovered is that take a rat or a mouse, put it in a challenging situation, give it some different medications, and the ones that make the animal less timid in those situations is assumed to make the animal less fearful, and that's why it's less timid. So when you give it to a person, they should be less fearful. But what you find is, say, a person with social anxiety might find it easier to go to the party, they're less timid, but still anxious while they're there. And the reason is that we now know is that Damage to the amygdala in a person doesn't necessarily also eliminate the feeling of fear. It gets rid of the, the body responses, but not the feeling. Mm. So it was a misunderstanding of what behavior can tell us. We treat behavior as if it's an ambassador of the mind, but behavior is really a tool of survival. It goes back to those first cells that ever lived who had to defend against danger. Bacterial cells move in, their, in the water, and then they come across like 
you know, a, a gradient of some chemical that's a toxin. As soon as they detect that, they bounce away and go in a different direction. If they, are going, if they find a gradient of something that is a nutrient, they keep going and, and absorb it. So they have the ability to detect what's useful and harmful in their lives. These are not, these are not there for psychology. They're simply there to keep the organism alive. And many of the behaviors that persist throughout the whole history of life are like that. They're there because each of the cell in, in cells in the body has to you know, do all these things to stay alive. And so the organism as a whole has to do it as well. Defend against danger, incorporate nutrients, balance fluids, thermoregulate, reproduce. So these are survival tools, not mind tools. Now we can use our mind in conjunction with these things. Uh, and because we can, we conflate every time we're freezing in the front of a snake to the fact that the fear is what's causing it. But the fear is a separate process. It's the awareness that that stuff is happening to you. The awareness that that stuff is happening to you. So, so, so no self, no fear. Oh. That's my T-shirt here. That's <laughs> it's my merch on the, the book. <laughs> <laughs> now, how do things like Xanax work? What What's the mechanical process? Okay, so the uh, that's a part of the class of drugs called benzodiazepine. And they um, will... They bind to receptors in the brain. The brain has receptors for all kinds of uh, uh, chemicals, and many of these things are things that exist in nature. And what they, want, that they bind to is a receptor called the GABA receptor, which is the major inhibitory transmitter in the brain. So when you have a benzodiazepine binding to a GABA receptor, what it's going to do is increase inhibition. So the, you know, the kind of simple reason why those things can help is they kind of inhibit. So they tone down the brain a bit. And so things that would normally trigger a response no longer trigger it. So it's like increasing the threshold for something to bother you in a sense. And a lot of people enjoy that with alcohol. You're not supposed to? Well, alcohol also attacks yes. those receptors. Yeah. So it's like a, you get double the, the effect. Right. Is that why they tell people don't have Xanax? Yeah, because you can, you know, if you, if you take a lot of Xanax and drink a lot of booze, you can OD. Or you could just say crazy things. <laughs> not, not totally be aware. Do you remember that story about a woman? She was, uh, I believe she was a publicist, and she got on a plane. Uh, she was flying to Africa. And she uh, said, I'm going to Africa. Hope I don't get AIDS. Just kidding. I'm white. LOL. <laughs> she thought she was just being funny. Uh -huh. And you laughed. And <laughs> she landed in Africa. That must have been a surprise. <laughs> Ooh. Do you know the story? No, but there are other oh stories like that. Uh, this, this was one of the original stories of someone ruining their entire life yeah, right. with just putting uh, you know, one little tweet right. online. She thought she was being funny. Like yeah. she, she would say a bunch of snarky things like that, a bunch of funny, trying to be funny. Right. Uh, but she was on Xanax and drinking yeah. and woke up uh, completely oblivious, right. and her life had been destroyed. Yeah. She was fired. You know, she was a social pariah. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that was uh -huh. Xanax and alcohol that she was blaming it on. Yeah, well, uh, you know, these are powerful drugs. And so, you know, back to how they, they work yeah. and they work. So a drug like that, all of the drugs that, that we take go to the entire body. You know, they don't, they're not able to just 
you know, find their way to one little spot in the brain and do their trick. There's this, you know, talk about magic bullet brain, uh, bullet drugs that might be able to be targeted for specific circuits, and, but that's, uh, you know, fantasy at this point. So if you reduce inhibition in the entire brain, yes, you might reduce, you know, anxiety, but you're also going to change a lot of other things. So you're going to make, um, uh, for example, forethought and uh, ability to rein in things like the, the stuff the woman was saying, uh, more difficult because they're attacking the prefrontal cortex where you have some inhibitory control over behavior. Um, they're going to alter your ability to retrieve and store memories and to, be a, to attend to things. And, um, you know, to the extent that these drugs have a, a positive effect on some people, uh, it's been said that part of the reason is that it's kind of a general blunting of emotion. It's not an anti-anxiety drug. It's just kind of a dulling of everything. And you get anxiety, anti-anxiety as, as a part of that. But if we want to understand how to do better, um, we have to, you know, figure out what the, the brain circuit that's really making us anxious is and not just what's making us, you know, not, not toning down everything. It's kind of like, you know, you go to a restaurant, the music's too loud, somebody says, please turn it down, so they turn it down a little bit. The music stays the same, it's the same song, but it's not as annoying, you know, mm. because you've turned the volume down. And I think that's what a lot of what these uh, medications can do is turn the volume down a bit or turn it up, you know, depending on what you do. Correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't there some sort of a slingshot effect, like after you take these things and your anxiety is ramped up afterwards? Well, it can be a rebound uh, yeah. effect. There can also be kind of a, uh, a lot of people next day feel depressed, mm. you know, because it just does the stuff is out of your system and just kind of the. You know, if you take – it's kind of like taking sleeping pills. Things like Ambien are of the same general category of drug, benzodiazepines. And so you get this hangover the next day. Okay. So it's just a physiological response to the medication. Yeah. It's not that if you alleviate some anxiety, then the anxiety wants to come back even stronger. Well, no, I mean – so, I, you know, I've, often, I've proposed in my, in my previous book that uh, we each have a, an anxiety set point that, um, you know, that let's say you, you're worried about something – and all of a sudden, that gets resolved. Whew, that just makes room for the next thing to work oh. with. So, you know, we each kind of fill that void because our brain is, you know, we've developed a brain that has a certain kind of set point for everything it's doing. And that just makes room for, you know, to fill that, fill that up. If you're an anxious person, you probably will always be somewhat anxious. So there's no magic bullet that's going to take that out. What you have to do is attack the process from knowledge of how it all works. And that requires that we have a more sophisticated understanding that we're, than uh, is possible from simply observing behavior because behavior does not tell you necessarily what's on the mind. Behavior tells you how the, the, the brain has responded. But, you know, just to go back to the, the fear threat example, uh, when Let's say I uh, bring you into the laboratory, uh, show you a picture of something like a, a blue square. Uh, my colleague Liz Phelps, who used to be at NYU, is now at Harvard, did experiments like this. Uh, and every time the blue square would come on, the person would get a mild shock to their finger. And so then she would present the blue square subliminally 
That means you know, really quickly with a, you know, something that follows it that kind of masks it. And that prevents the information from getting into the conscious mind. Uh, and so the person said, I didn't see anything. But if you put the person in an imaging machine, fMRI, and uh, image what's happening, that stimulus, that threat, the blue square gets to the amygdala, turns it on, the heart begins to race, palms are sweating, um, but the person has no fear. Hmm. The person doesn't know it's there and doesn't experience fear. The amygdala is not about fear. It's about detecting and responding to danger. In order to be afraid, that has to reach your conscious mind so that you can experience it as a state of this autonoetic consciousness that we're talking about, a self-involved consciousness. That's hard for people to separate. Yeah. Well, the but idea that, that there's a, a physical response, but that your mind's unaware of it. Right. But when you understand that, that's why you come to understand that's why the medications are not working. They're targeted to work on these underlying systems in rats or mice, but that's not where we are experiencing our anxiety. But these, these medications are very profitable, right? I mean, people well, enjoy it. Millions of prescriptions get written. Do, yeah, are they but just going to phase those out? They'll probably, you know, I, they're probably all going off patent. And because the company can't find anything new, they're not going to keep pursuing it because you know, it's not going to be a profit anymore. But don't people still want them? I mean, it seems like that's a really popular uh, medication. <laughs> yes, it'll be like it'll, they'll go to, um, you know, they'll become uh, you know, generics and people will be able to get them for less money. And they'll just do with whatever they want. Yeah. Off-label, whatever. Yeah, I mean, it's... You know, it's, I, I do think that, for example, the drugs that are available do help people because it's important to reduce the behavioral timidity and the physiological arousal that goes with that. Because if you don't treat that, then the conscious uh, uh, mind will be reactivated by those responses. If you only treat the conscious mind, then uh, the physiological stuff will bring the conscious stuff back. Hmm. You know, everything will bring back the everything else unless you treat the whole system. And you have to, to do that, you have to understand the system. And we've just misunderstood it, I think, for so long. I have a friend who, he takes it every day, takes Xanax every day. Yeah. And he says he needs it. Mm -hmm. He says without it, he's just a, yeah. a mess. Well... You know, whatever gets you through the day, I guess. You know, it's, I'm, I'm not a therapist. I'm not, like, right. advocating that. <laughs> I know. I understand. But from your perspective, from an understanding of the human mind yeah. and all the systems that are at work, it seems like that's really not the way to do it. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I'm sure that that's, you know, in a sense, maybe that's uh, his crutch, his way to get through mm -hmm. the day. And um, he's come to believe that he needs that. Much like an alcoholic believes they need a drink. Yep. Yeah, um, but I'm not calling him, and you know. Well, I'll call him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he does like to drink too. Yeah, well. but he's a great guy. Uh, <laughs> with these uh, these systems that are in place, and the all of the various things that have gotten us to 2019 as a yeah. human species, when you study anxiety and you study fear and all these different things is are are we experiencing high levels of it because there's not as much real physical danger as our ancestors experienced and it's almost like we're looking for it when it's not necessarily there like we're 
we're programmed to be able to deal with it. Yeah, that's a, a good point. Um, I hadn't thought of it that way, but I think that's a good way to think about it. I mean, you know, the philosopher Kierkegaard said that anxiety is the price we pay for the human ability to choose. Mm. And this is where our autonoetic consciousness comes in, our ability to, to think of ourselves as having a past and a future and to be able to, to, to plan and choose in the future. You know, he said it started with Adam making the first choice as a human in the Garden of Eden, and that was where it all uh, began. Um, so, and our ability, you know, you can rephrase that statement by saying our ability um, to choose is um, what allows us to be anxious because that is uh, what anxiety is, a worry about what we're, have we, are we going to make the right decision? You know, how can we deal with this thing that's coming up? It's a worry about the future. Yeah, and the ability to think about the possibilities, right. like what could go wrong, what right. could go right, am I doing the right thing, yeah. and then to contemplate all those various choices, right. anxiety. Yeah. So, like, you know, you, you're walking through the woods as a snake, you might freeze, but almost instantly that fear that is generated by you freezing and seeing the snake um, morphs into anxiety. You know, will the snake bite me? Mm. If it bites me, will I get to a doctor? Will he have the anecdote? If I die, what will happen to my family? You know, that's worry. That's anxiety. So these are they're, – they're kind mm. of separate. Fear is about uh, a, a danger that's present. Anxiety is about one that hasn't happened yet. But almost always, as soon as you're afraid, that makes you anxious about what's going to happen. And then there's general existential angst, mm -hmm. the, the just right. – the 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 life itself right. the existence yeah. is the just a what is this <laughs> what yeah and all of that is due to uh, our prefrontal cortex our ability to conceptualize to um, you know imagine things that that have never been imagined before to create art to build to create architecture build buildings imagine going to the moon designing a an instrument to do that and actually pulling it off and make sure it can get back. All of that is something that our special kind of consciousness uh, enables. But it has a dark side, which is it also allows us to be incredibly selfish and self-centered and narcissistic and to uh, support tribes and groups and, you know, uh, unless we... I mean, I think our, that the world survives best when it's either completely isolated, all the cultures are isolated, or if we could also somehow be together in a more unified way. Because the direction we're going now, where each country is isolating itself, but is, is still so entangled with all the others, is a recipe for disaster. Is this because we evolved essentially without long-term travel? I mean, we kind of evolved to stay in whatever area the resources were in when we were hunters and gatherers. Mm -hmm. And then somewhere along the line, somebody figured out boats and how to get on a horse. And uh, the next thing you know, you're visiting people. I think it's more about, um, you know, we have a, a special kind of inquisitiveness that we can, because we can mentally model the next step and plan what are the options, you know, try to anticipate the, uh, the problems that are going to come up and take those steps. Um, and, and that's a pretty special thing. But 
it also allows us to plan in a kind of devious way where, you know, me or my group is going to benefit. And uh, if mine benefits, I don't want the other one to benefit because we got to keep everything separate. Mm. So it's, you know, consciousness, our kind of consciousness is our, our you know, greatest achievement, but also probably our worst aspect. Oof. But it's, hmm. but it's what makes us human. It is. The imagining humans with no consciousness is no. impossible. No, it's a, there's no way to go in that direction. That's so is, is the key to this thing as the human race, is it managing our consciousness? Or perhaps maybe work like yours, giving us the tools to understand what are the mechanisms involved that maybe that can help us sort of navigate our biological traps and... Maybe. I mean, uh, I think it's, you know, certainly we don't, I think the, I, I mean, I have no idea what your position on uh, climate change is, but uh, personally, I think that things are happening and something needs to be done. That's clearly things are happening. And that, you know, there was, a, I read a couple of editorials, uh, probably in the New York Times or something uh, a couple of months ago. One was about how, yes, the, you know, Things are changing, and uh, we have a right to worry. But, you know, we shouldn't worry about the earth. As, uh, you know, the famous quote is, Gaia is a tough bitch. So the earth will survive, but the configuration of life on it is unlikely to continue to be the same under those conditions. The more that everything changes, the conditions of life change. And the first things to go um, and this is what happened to the dinosaurs, are large energy-demanding organisms. Because as the conditions change, um, you know, the, the climate that we've lived in, we've succeeded because we were able to benefit from that kind of climate. But as the climate begins to change, our kind is not going to be able to succeed as well because those conditions are, you know, the waters are rising, the deserts are uh, expanding, all these things are happening, and it's just not going to be. Um, yeah, species don't last that long. Right. A few million years and they go. So our time may be. <laughs> well, we've only been around for what, 300, 400,000 years and mm, something? Well, it depends on what, what we you are. call we. Yeah. Right? But and you know, the Neanderthals were around quite a bit longer than that. Yeah. And they're not here anymore. So. We don't have a – I mean, I think that we can use our minds to try and, you know, help us get through this. But that's only going to work if we can do that collectively. That's the scary part. We have to work together collectively as a world because these are not local issues. These are global issues. Yeah, right. And that is – how is that going to happen? Getting <laughs> – you know, especially getting other countries like China to comply. Yeah. And, but, you know, you see uh, small successes. I mean, like auto companies deciding, well, we need to, you know, rein in the emissions. And they, there's probably a profit motive uh, underlying that at some point. Sure. And people are conscious. There's green dollars. Yeah. Right. right. Like you want to – like when when you think about technological achievements and you think about the – the conscious mind and the ability to create and the creative process, do you envision the possibility of some sort of a technological solution to a lot of the problems that we're facing? I think it has to be a social solution. Social. How so? 
we have to we we have to figure out how to balance this worldwide. You can't this we can do whatever we want in this country if we could do what we want. But you know if if, uh, if even if we were the best country in the world for the environment, that wouldn't solve the problem. You know it's it's a worldwide problem. You know the Amazon forest that's affecting a lot of people. You know the it's just not a it's not a simple thing that one country can solve. Right. But if one country takes steps mm-hmm. and imposes some sort of a technological solution that pulls carbon from right. the atmosphere that does enhance some sort of a cooling process to bring homeostasis to bring some sort of a like generally agreed upon state right. of the environment, if that's technologically possible, I mean that's going to come out of the creative yeah. mind, right? Well, you know, I don't want to go too far off into my not area of expertise, like climate right. and all that. I just think there's, I think of it from the kind of the social perspective and what our brains are contributing. But I, I don't want to. I, I don't think I can really address the details of all that. But, right, yeah. but even like socially. If we did address it socially, we're still going to have to d- deal with the actual physical limitations right. of the just the environment that we live in and what we've done. Yes, yes. How to somehow or another f- mitigate it? Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So, but yeah, so I think you know creators coming along and trying to find technical solutions—that's great. When you analyze the human mind and knowing what you know about the thought processes and the way people think and work, when you see people in denial of climate change and when you see people that are so enamored with the the concept of capitalism and big business that they don't really think that it's a big deal or they want to deny that it's a big deal so that they can continue short-term profits. Right. What is that like? Those mechanisms, like wa- it, watching that take place in the monkey mind. <laughs> yeah. Well, what are you What are you thinking when you see that happen with humans? I, you know, I, th- I don't think it's simple. Um, it's not simply denial of climate change <clears throat> for climate reasons. I think there's a lot of um, social, you know, within certain groups, there's social stigma for being pro environment. Yes. And so it, it's. Um, Tribal, yeah, tribal. It's it's uh, people, yeah, people cling together, and it's a kind of form of self protection um, that by identifying a set of issues that we all can agree upon uh, because they're kind of dictated top down in a sense that uh, are our thing, and then that thing is somebody else's thing. Mm. So. Yeah, that's a weird aspect of being a human being, mm-hmm. right? These tribal identity things where if you're in this group, you must be pro-choice. Right. If you're in this group, you must be pro-life. You yeah. must be anti-war. Yeah. You must be pro-Second Amendment. Like, there's very little deviation. And, and that that's left, right. That's everything. Yeah. I mean, the, the belief systems, rigid belief systems, are, you know, part of uh, just part of being. And when you look at politics and you know that these belief systems are when, – do you, do you find it odd that we have these like sort of polar opposites or at least left-right choices, red-blue choices, that we've limited ourselves to these very distinct tribes? Right. Um, that's, yeah, I think that's unfortunate, but that's where we are. Is there a way out of that? Yeah, the political scientists have to take we're, that we're one out. Down a, <laughs> we're going down a weird road. 
what do you think is the source of creativity? Like somewhere along the line, I mean, and we've seen it, right? I mean, there's some speculation and scientists have sort of generally agreed that some monkeys are in the Stone Age, that some primates are in, in what would be considered Stone Age. They're starting to use tools. They're starting to use sticks. And right. there's a famous photograph that I love of an orangutan. Where are we going to get a, a copy of that? We should get that orangutan with a spear. We make a note of that. There's a crazy orangutan image of an orangutan holding onto a branch and then spearfishing. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. Oh. And apparently <coughs> he had seen humans do it, so mm -hmm. that's where he learned the behavior. That imitation. Yeah. Yes, but still, that is a primate using a weapon right. to try to spearfish. Look at this photo. Is that <laughs> <Nice>. incredible? <laughs> nice. I mean, that is incredible. I mean, that's like really thoughtful and skillful. And the way he's hanging, I mean... My goodness, look at that. I've, I love that picture. That picture is amazing. Yeah. Now, th this, the creativity that allows you to get food when you couldn't get food, allows you to escape from environmental conditions, allows you to escape from predators, all these things are rewarded by the continuing of your genetics. Right. So, But there are other things that come into play. One of the specialties that, uh, that came along, I think, is a byproduct of having language. And by language, I don't mean words. But what language did, what was required for language to come out of the brain, which is the development of a cognitive sort of architecture in our brain that allowed all kinds of um, mental jumping around. So, for example, um, for... Most animals to learn, you know, who to trust and who not to trust and what some, what who's, what in a given situation, who's going to do what to whom by just looking around. They have to go through trial and error learning and see, they experience all of that a lot. But the human mind can simulate, create a mental model and instantaneously make those kinds of uh, predictions on the basis of very limited information. Um, and this is based on something, well, we, the, re, the relation to language is that syntax gives you those kinds of uh, options because you can, you know, you have um, um, uh, past, present, future states that can be related to you and to others and so forth. And personal pronouns are very important in terms of uh, me, I, mine, you, yours, that those, the, the point when those come in in a child is the first point when I think self-awareness can fully be tested and, and shown. Um, and some people say, well, they have it, but they just couldn't express it. Uh, others say, no, that the arrival of the pronoun, personal pronouns are very important in the child's development of a sense of, of self. But anyway, so language changes uh, the brain, changes the cognitive architecture of the brain, and allows for something, just to throw out a technical term, hierarchical relational re reasoning just the ability to think across kind of conceptual categories uh, laterally and horizontally uh, so that information, you can just jump around. And that's kind of what creativity is, the ability mm. to just jump around in mental space and come up with something by a unique combination of, of those things. Do you, do you think that there's variation in terms of the, the types of languages like – Chinese versus Spanish versus that they l allow you to interface with the world in a different way 
because I'm, the language is structured very differently. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right, but I don't know if enough about other languages to say exactly how. I think, I think it was Malcolm Gladwell. I think it was the outliers where they discussed uh -huh. this, like the limitations of certain languages uh -huh. uh, in terms of uh, pilots. Was that Gladwell? I think it was. Uh, well, they, were, they, were, they were discussing how uh, Korean airlines – because they have sort of a hierarchy mm -hmm. of, uh, you know, the, the way you're supposed to treat the uh, upper levels of management mm -hmm. and, up, and they, that they had to force these pilots to all speak English so that they didn't have this hierarchy, mm -hmm. like the, this presumed hierarchy of right. being able to address situations right. that planes had crashed because co-pilots were in their place. They were put in their place, and right. they weren't allowed to address pilots. And that once they had switched over to English, that the language – like there's so many different versions of dealing with your boss or <coughs> someone who's an upper-level person. That There's so many different ways that you were supposed to address them and that they had eliminated all that by using English. Yeah. And it made me think, like, just using d different styles of language, the way human beings communicate here is very different than the way people h communicate, say, um, you know, in some African countries. Right. That we have these d different styles of interpreting the world around us, and those in turn – have a profound effect on the way we sort of interface with the world. Yeah, I think that's definitely right. So it's you know it's inter interesting to think about emotion and language. So it's often said that an emotion like fear is universal across the world, but I don't think that's actually correct. What's universal is danger, mm. and the way fear is interpreted by different cultures is obviously different. I mean, different uh, the Asians have a different kind of a um, perspective on fear. Every culture has their own perspective on fear. So if it's fear is the you know the the kind of cultural assembly that you have in your brain in response to danger. So every culture has to have a language of fear, but not because fear is universal, but because danger is universal. Mm. And what they interpret as danger is different. Right. And fear. For one person, something could could create fear, whereas for another person, the exact same situation would not, right. depending upon their personal experiences and maybe even their genetic makeup. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, genes contribute. So we um, every part of our brain is under some kind of genetic influence. So every, for example, the amygdala will be genetically kind of slightly more revved up in one person than another, so a little more sensitive to danger. And so that person might be responding more to danger, in part because of genes, but also maybe because of experiences that they've had. Uh, and so then the conscious mind is seeing those responses and starting to conclude, oh, I'm an anxious, fearful person. And that all of that information gets collected in what's called a fear schema, which is a body of knowledge of everything you know about danger and including the way you react you react to danger and your uh just you know who you are in terms of danger and so whenever you encounter danger that schema is what's called pattern completed so presence of a, a threat in the world is enough to go into your brain and activate those memories about danger that give you uh in a non-conscious representation you know an activation of this fear schema that is what then bubbles up into consciousness. That's your experience of fear, is what has been activated in your fear schema. 
knowing what you know and then watching whatever anxieties or fears may play out in your own mind, mm -hmm. is that, for lack of a better term, a mind fuck for you? <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, I you mean, studied this so much, yeah. and then you're a human. Yeah. So I assume you have the same anxieties. I have a lot of anxieties. That yeah. we all do. Yeah. And truthfully, it, it helps to some extent. So I used, uh, in 1996, I published a book called The Emotional Brain. And a few years later, I, I started finding out from therapists that um, the, uh, a lot of patients were reading the book with their therapist, and they were saying that it was really helping them understand why, you know, how different things were happening, that the, uh, the amygdala was causing them to react in certain situations, but their fear was their conscious understanding of those reactions, and those were not the same thing. And that separation helped them, you know, navigate their own situation and, and in a situation of danger, separating out, okay, that's my body is responding this way, my mind is responding this way, and these are two separate things I need to work on and control. Have you studied various ways that people mitigate anxiety and fear, like meditation and yoga and all these different things that sort of change people's states? Mm -hmm. I mean, I haven't, I, you know, I haven't studied it myself, but um, uh, I have researched it a bit. Uh, I've tr I try to do meditation myself because I think it's the, probably the most direct and effective way in the moment to, you know, sitting in the room outside waiting for it. Just had my hat and sunglasses on, just trying to chill out, meditate a little bit, get ready for you. Mm -hmm. Do you do that on a regular basis? You know, it's, it's hard to maintain it because life gets busy and it seems like the hardest time to do it is when you need it most, right? Yeah. I think it's one of those things like hygiene where you just sort of have to say, well, it's hard to take a shower. Well, yeah. You have to take a shower. Yeah. Yeah. Don't stink. Right. You have to brush your teeth. Yeah. You get cavities. You have I, to meditate. You'll go crazy. Yeah, it's perfect. That's the way it should be done. I think that is what it – so when you examine those kind of tools, like tools that people have sort of – imagined or created to, to sort of in some way alleviate anxiety or enhance perspective do you do you spend much time dwelling on the creation of those things and what's going on there uh, what do you mean by the creation well the, like a human had to figure <laughs> oh, yeah, out okay. how to meditate a, a person right. had to figure out these modalities right. these different ways to sort of interface with yeah. so let, let's Take that from uh, take that to the nature of most approaches to fear and anxiety today. Um, hold just hold off the meditation part slightly. Okay. So we have you know psychopharmacology is a major line of attack, and also um, what's called cognitive behavioral therapy, um, which is uh, arose as a form first called behavioral therapy because it came out of the behaviorist movement which said there's no consciousness you know that that the human is a stimulus response uh, organism that is based on a history of reinforcement with certain kinds of situations um, so behavior therapy was about using pavlovian or operant conditioning to change um, how the brain would respond to threats and how people would act in those situations. Um, it wasn't about the mind at all. It was all about behavior. And then cognition was added to that, so that became cognitive behavioral therapy. But again, the, the cognitive change was used 
as a way of changing behavior because so much emphasis has been placed on uh, behavior in our culture, including in the drug therapy world. It's all based on changing measurable things like behavior and physiology. And that, I think that that's why all of these things, in some sense, have not worked out as well as we would like. You know, the best, in, uh, the best medications and the best CBT trials will give you like 75% record of, of help in, the, in a group. That's pretty great, though, isn't it? Yeah, I've still got 25. That's, but, <laughs> uh, yeah, but you also have to extract out the placebo effect. Mm-hmm. And in many of these uh, uh, drug studies, for example, depressive antidepressant drugs, the placebo effect is you know, only – the drug effect is only slightly better than the placebo effect. Well, when you have cognitive behavioral therapy, there's – I mean, you're actually going for the placebo effect. Right. I mean, you're trying to. There's nothing wrong with placebo effect. In that sense, though, you are trying to sort of you're, you're trying to use some sort of strategy with your mind in therapy, whether it's meditation or right. what you're doing. You're trying to enact change, right. and if that change is enacted, there's not a pill involved. Right. So it is kind of like the same mechanism that's involved in a placebo effect. Mm-hmm. Your, your mind is creating this this right. new change. Yes, and benefits. so, but the question is. A person that goes through the motions but doesn't get the therapy, right? How much are they changed by, simply by kind of going through it? You right. know, th- I, it? There's so many variations with humans. Though. I'd like to find out: like, are they lazy? Are, are they self-destructive? <laughs> like, and why is that the case? Like, well, yeah, maybe all of the above. All the above. <laughs> yeah. But whenever you have, I think 75 percent is amazing. Yeah. Can you consider if you have a group of people? What are the odds, if you have a group of 100 people, what are the odds that 25 of them are going to be lazy? <laughs> Pretty good, right? Yeah. Pretty, I mean, I would bet a ton of money that 25% of those people don't do what they're supposed to do all the time. Right. So, you know, you're right. But I think the, the issue is, from a scientific point of view, we need to know exactly what really works, what's different from placebo. Right. So that we can see what to build upon. For medication. For medication, for cognitive therapy as well. But the therapy thing is so strange to me because – okay, maybe we're using the wrong word yeah. with placebo because placebo is a word for a medication that has a psychosomatic effect, right? Well, it's, it's the control group that doesn't right. get the treatment. Right. So you get that it's in. It's not really doing anything physiologically, but your body is interpreting it as medicine and saying, all right, change is coming, and right. then the change comes. Right. And that is a real thing. But when you're thinking about cognitive behavioral therapy, you're thinking about using techniques and strategies to change the way you think and behave. So the the concept of the placebo effect doesn't really apply there. Well, you have to have a control group right. in the study. You have to have randomized control in order to make it. So when you have cognitive behavioral therapy and you have randomized control and you have a control group, do you just give them shitty therapy? <laughs> <laughs> like, what you t- we need to get uh, a therapist on here to give you the answer to that because right. I don't know the answer. Have you gone to therapy yourself? I have, yeah. Did you ex- do that to examine this? Um, I, you know, I, I mainly went into it with for the meditation uh, part mm. to try and uh, calm some of my you know, restlessness. Has writing and all this study that you had to do to write these books, has that enhanced you? I mean, the, you have much more of an understanding about what's at play than the average person does. Well, 
you know, again, it's, it's kind of like the patient who's reading the emotional brain with, the, with their therapist. I think by writing those books, I learn a lot, and it helps me see things. And that, doesn't necessarily help me lead my life any better, uh, mm. but it, I think I understand it uh, better. But no self, no fear. Yeah. Well, no self, no fear means that you have to be, you have to have this autonoetic consciousness ability in order to be afraid. And that is a, a special human quality the ability to put yourself in the moment, in your past, and in your future. Um, if it's not you that's going to be harmed by that snake, then you don't have to worry about what it's going to do to you. So if you are part of it, then you worry, and it becomes, you know, it's an emotion when, when you're involved. So I think emotions, this is a crazy idea that's in the book, that emotions didn't arise through natural selection. Really? Well, that, that's the idea, that they um, were byproducts of other capacities that came along. First, you had some kind of crude language that enabled this hierarchical and relational reasoning to jump across. You know, language gave you categories to like conceptualize things. Hierarchical reasoning allowed you to jump across those categories, um, and those kinds of things allow you to conceptualize yourself as an entity with an experience. So you, you had to have a self that could do that kind of reasoning and um, uh, across those conceptual categories. And that is what enabled an emotion, the ability to put yourself into a significant situation. So now that it's here, now that we have, once emotions are there, then they become selected. But they weren't selected by, for example, the amygdala having evolved to be the fear center and we inherited that from animals. You know, animals probably have some kinds of experiences, but it's scientifically, it's very hard to know what they have. Well, we know, like, dogs have emotions, right? Dogs well, get I wouldn't sad, say that. Dogs get happy. Well, you, you see their behavior. Right. But I'm not saying they aren't, but scientifically, you can't measure that. Right, but if you have a dog and you come home and he's so excited to see you and he's running around in circles, that seems very emotional. Well, or akin, yeah, right? But I don't said. Let's talk about the brain for a second. Okay. So the parts of the brain, circuits in the brain that um, are involved in this kind of autonoetic emotion that I'm talking about, this self-involved emotion that's so human, uh, such a human quality, um, the, I, the part of the brain that I think is important, and this is still hypothesis, it's not a fact, uh, is something called the frontal pole. It's the very, very front part of the prefrontal cortex. That region ha is unique to the human brain. No other, not even another ape has that. Now, other parts of the prefrontal cortex are present in other primates, all other primates, but not in any other mammal. So if we can figure out in the human brain what that frontal pole does and what that other part that all primates have do, then that gives us an anchor for speculating about what other primates, what kinds of experience other primates have, given what those parts of the brain enable in us. And that would allow us to then extract what other mammals don't have that we have because they don't have those parts of the brain. So it's a, it's a kind of, you know, 
use of the brain to, to tell us some things about what might exist in other animals. But there's no way to ask a dog what's on your mind. Right. Um, Could we in, measure the brain with an fMRI or something along those lines where you get a reading of – But that's not a, an answer. I mean it, no. it's correlate. Right. So a human – like I can – you know, if you ask me, uh, is there a pen here on the table? I say – Yes, I can respond verbally, or I can point to it. Um, but uh, when I'm responding verbally, I can only do that for something I'm conscious of. I can't respond to something I'm unconscious of by naming it. Follow that? Hmm. Other animals can only respond non-verbally, so they don't have that other kind of response that is only reflecting a conscious state. So I'm not saying they don't have anything, but scientifically it's very hard to, to know what they have. And the fact that we can study, it, we know in, for example, fear, that the fear itself probably doesn't depend on the amygdala, but the, all the behavior that we see does makes us have to be cautious about observing behaviors that look like they're based on fear, love, and all these other emotions when we can't really know because we can't measure that. Oof. I mean, it's a tough problem. Again, I'm not saying it's not there. It's just like <laughs> right, I get it. scientifically, you know, you have to – You have to be stringent. What's the evidence? <laughs> yes, yeah, you have to now, – now measuring it in humans – is I mean, there's this concept of people. I'm an emotional person. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm emotional. Like people, I get emotional. Like people love to say yeah. those those kind of right. things. What are, is it possible to measure varying degrees of emotional response in terms of like how it's affecting a person physiologically, whether or not these emotional responses are physiological, or whether you've gone down a well-grooved psychological path that you've been sort of participating in your whole life so that you have these right. uh, sort of triggers. This happens, and then, up, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start crying. This happens, up, oh, I'm going to get angry. And people sort of fall into those paths without self-reflection, without this ability to be objective and introspective and go, why am I reacting this way? Mm -hmm. Like, what? maybe you should stop being so emotional, Joe. Right? Has anybody ever said that to you? <laughs> uh, I guess my oh, sure. wife has said that. <laughs> sure. Well, what does that mean? Like, yeah. what, what, you know so, what I mean? Like, the, this, the varying degrees of emotional right. response and whether or not those are beneficial or whether or not they d detract from your experience right. or inhibit your, your ability to be productive. So, you know, I, you've really nailed a lot of interesting stuff in there. And I, um, you know, it's a very kind of deep analysis of, of what's going on. So the problem is that our language is so bad that um, all these terms that we have, we borrow from what's called folk wisdom or folk psychology. You know, they've, they've come through the ages. And this is true in every aspect of science, that you have folk terms, you know, folk physics becomes real physics and then the folk stuff goes away, folk biology becomes real biology, and the, you know, the, the folk stuff goes away. But in psychology, the folk stuff never goes away because we always experience the folk aspect of it when we have a conscious experience. That's what our conscious minds is, our folk psychology of ourselves and of others and of other animals. But 
the um, um, underneath that is the part that we can get rid of the folk psychology of because we can understand how behavior is controlled, how these physiological responses are controlled. And it ain't because, you know, we've had fear is causing it. You know, but, but when you're afraid, you're almost always running from the bear and feeling fear. But, and, and so you assume that when you're running from the bear, fear is what causes you to run. But fear is not the answer. Fear is your awareness that all that shit is happening to you. Mm. But also the the ability to contemplate the consequences, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, this bear's going to get me, he's going to eat me. Yeah. So it's all, fear. it's all, you know, one interpretation after another running forward. But no self, no fear. That's n no possible either, right? Well, if, no, I mean, you need the self to be afraid. Yeah. So... I mean, that's your, and to be consciously afraid, but you can react to danger without the self. And that's what, you know, that's key. You, you find yourself freezing or you're walking in New York City and you jump back and the bus goes flying by. So you've reacted to danger, but, but only afterwards do you feel fear when you cognitively become aware that that's happened. Well, in that sort of a situation, but in a situation like where you're walking down a dark alley and then you see some guy who seems to be following you. Yeah. You're like, oh boy. Yeah. So now you're, you're in a situation where you're in a potentially dangerous situation. Right. So now you're anxious about what's going to happen. So yeah. you're not starting with fear. You're starting with anxiety. Worry about what's going to happen. Nothing, there's nothing there that's made you. But then one of you ramps it up. says, uh, hey, Joe, yeah. why don't you come over here, man? Right. I'd like to borrow some money from you. Yeah. And you're like, oh, shit. Now so, it's fear? Is that fear? Now you've got a, a specific threat, and right. yeah, so you now you're into fear, and then that's going to morph into another anxiety about what the hell is this guy going to do to me? Right. So, but all of that, you know, the the, the dark alleyway is going to go into your brain and trigger your muscle tension, your heart to race, and so forth. And the dark alley is going to go to your cortex, and you're going to be interpreting the fact that you're in a dark alley, and your heart is racing in terms of being anxious and fearful, and all of that. But they're happening separately. It's not one bundle. It's like mm. separate things in the brain. And once we understand that, it becomes, I think, a much easier problem how to approach problems of fear and anxiety. You've got to separately treat the behavior and the physiology from the conscious thoughts. And in between those two, you've also got to change the cognitions that underlie uh, the, the conscious experience, but also the cognitions can trigger behavior. So... You know, one of the things we've, uh, we've proposed, uh, I, I proposed this in my last book, uh, Anxious, was a kind of test program for exploring this, where uh, it would be kind of a three-part, uh, three-step program. Um, first, you would, um, you'd have to do it with something simple like a spider-phobic. A what? Spider-phobic or snake-phobic. Oh, okay. So you would do exposure therapy subliminally. That means you Subliminally? Present the picture of a snake or the spider so fast that the conscious mind doesn't know it's there. So like those old uh, hungry eat popcorn things? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, movies? Right, okay. right, yeah. And that's a very common technique in psychology. So too. they would show you a film and there'd be one or two frames of a spider if you had a rack. Or just a picture. You know, okay. or, but it could be a film, yeah. Okay. And, uh, it, but it would have to go very fast in the film. So, it would, it, so with a picture, you just present it re really quickly. And because, um, you know, normally if you show a spider phobic uh, 
try to do exposure therapy. They don't want to do it because they don't want to deal with spiders. Mm. But they, they, their conscious mind doesn't know it's happening because it's going through subliminally. So the amygdala is being tamed by the exposure. And now they can look at the picture without you know, the body re reacting. They're not jumping. They're not, uh, their heart isn't racing because the amygdala has been turned off. So all of those body responses have, have calmed down. So now the person can kind of go some, undergo some cognitive change about looking at spiders and so forth. And then finally, once you've done those two steps, the brain's ready for talk therapy and meditation and other kinds of mindfulness approaches. Uh, because all of the, the impediments to all that have been put aside by this, these first two steps. So has anybody ever like officially cured someone of arachnophobia or phidiophobia or you know fear of snakes or spiders like those are those seem to be almost like deep-seated genetic fears well that we i mean our ancestors yes had uh, snake and but they vary right which is what's weird the, the, our I ancestors mean, certainly experienced venomous snakes right. and but there's something about some people have of almost illogical reaction right. to it that it's often been speculated that this is some sort of a genetic memory of someone perhaps in their ancestry line surviving a snake attack or losing mm. someone to a snake. It's more, you know, it turns out that the, uh, it's more about the ability to rapidly learn about those kinds of dangers than to innately respond. Mm. So there seems to be, it's called prepared learning. So you have an evolutionarily based thing that's with you that everyone has some version of, but you know, it varies from individual to individual. And then some people <clears throat> um, are prone to rapidly learn that, either because of other experiences or because of their particular genetic makeup. And so they tend to go down the road of, of acquiring these kinds of phobias. Now, so it's the problem with treating that by just extinguishing it uh, through exposure is that the um, uh, extinction is always impermanent. You know, if you, once you've been reduced, nothing is wrong. This is true in a rat or a person. Let's say the rat has been given a tone that's been paired with a shock, and then it hears the tone 20 or 30 times, it stops responding. But then if it goes back in the, the room or the chamber where the shock had occurred, the tone will again bring it, you know, elicit it, and a spider-phobic, returns to the place where he or she was bitten by a spider or a place where spiders are supposed to be present, it can come back. So these are imperfect temporary solutions. They're not enough. Um, and uh, that's why, I mean, they're called, uh, these are called, you know, reinstatement and um, uh, things like that because they, they pop back up. So maybe medications can help tamp that down a bit. So... Uh, medications are useful in, in that sense of being able to control the behavior and the physiology, but less so in terms of changing the mental state. Because, you know, how could you possibly design a medication that would know how to change the content of a, a mental state? I mean, that seems like an impossible task. Mm. And that's what you want to do. You don't want to change all mental states. Right. You want to change the one content, you know. I'm afraid of spiders. Yeah. Oh, it's... It's, it's so fascinating, though, how people vary so widely in their their reaction to certain fears or to certain things that could induce fear, 
whether it's dogs or you know whatever irrational thing that people yeah. have the the source of that is v really often speculated that there's like some sort of a genetic component to mm -hmm. it do you buy into that so let's say let's say um, that you know in any kind of situation like that there are multiple systems in the brain that are going to mm -hmm. be involved we're going to isolate the amygdala as you know hypothetical part of that system that is detecting and responding to the stimulus. So we're going to go into the amygdala and focus on one little part of it uh, called the lateral nucleus. That doesn't matter, but it's the part that gets the input from the outside world. So that is the gateway into the amygdala. So now let's talk about, let's say it's got, I don't know, 100,000 cells and neurons. Um, and um, each of those neurons is going to have a bell curve that's based on the genes that made that cell and whatever kinds of electrical signals it's had throughout the life of the organism. So you're going to have 100,000 bell curves of you know, various degrees that when the stimulus comes in, those cells that, that are activated, their little bell curves are going to determine how much they respond to that. And that's going to propagate to other cells that have their own bell curves in areas and so on down the line that what happens at the level of behavior is a very complicated uh, kind of summation of all those bell curves of all those cells that happen to be activated. So it's not like, you know, one thing is programmed. It's not like a brain area is programmed. It's all about what's happened at those specific cells, both through genetics and experience. So we often kind of oversimplify things by thinking, well, there's a, a gene or a, an area that has um, inherited that thing. When you think of human beings and you think of what we used to be when we were some sort of a lower hominid and now what we are now, and you think of all these various components that are at play, do you... Do you ever try to imagine what a human of a thousand years or ten thousand or hundred thousand years from now will be like? Oh, they're they're going to be different. You know, we're not. Uh, every organism is in constant change. You know, the racial mixing, uh, interbreeding happens, um, and so random mutations. Random mutations. Uh, we, we're living longer, and so. You know, that's creating uh, – people are having babies later. That will change a lot of stuff. So we're going to be a different uh, thing. At some point, we may split out into a whole new kind of uh, human. The, the, the thing about people having babies older, I mean, there's certainly physical limitations uh, when people start having babies older. But on the plus side, you're dealing with someone that has a lot more life experience that's raising a child. Yeah. You know, versus, uh, you know, my mom had me when she was 20, mm -hmm. 21. You know, what, do you, what the fuck do you know when you're 21? <laughs> you, don't, you don't know much. But if you're a woman who has a child when yeah. you're 40, well, hey, that's a, a rich life of a lot of experiences. And maybe you can impart some of that wisdom to your child yeah. and look at things in a different way. And maybe that in turn will raise a child that's more balanced. Right. You know, I, I'm talking out of my area here, but I, I think that um, probably – you know, the eggs sit around for a long time, and I don't know what the effect of aging on the egg is. Mm. 
Uh, I just don't know. Well, there's also a big factor with the male sperm. And the male sperm, yes. They're thinking that's one of the main contributors right. to autism. And schizophrenia, men. supposedly, uh, uh, I've heard uh, uh, that you know older fathers are more likely to mm. have uh, male sons that are schizophrenic. Yeah, that makes sense. I, don't, I wouldn't say that sense. as a fact, but I, I've heard that. Well, it all makes sense that there be some yeah. glitches in the matrix. As yeah, I mean, we're not you know, we're not supposed to live that long. <laughs> no. Are we not? But what what are your thoughts on people that are trying to live longer and, and trying to sort of uh, squeeze out as much time as they can yeah, on this no. rock? No, it's like I see a lot of old people that just don't want to live anymore, and I understand that. You, you know, your body starts falling apart. Your mind is going... What's the point at that point? Yeah, I get that. But what about the people that can keep it together? Yeah. Yeah, I guess if you keep it together, you want to like, you know, okay, let's let's go as far as we can. (laughs) Let's go to the moon and uh, go to Mars. Well, pharmacological solutions to, I mean, if if there was some sort of a genetic component that they identified to aging and they gave the option to reverse the process, would you participate or do you like it? Do you like the finite nature of this existence? Uh, I do. I, I think so. It's like I knew you were going to answer that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think uh, I don't. I'm, I'm not. I take certain medications, but I'd rather just live as most of my life as possible without them. Mm. So, what medications do you take? Uh, you know, blood pressure and mainly blood pressure stuff. Yeah. Do you exercise? Uh, not enough. <laughs> That's a, yeah, they got a big effect on anxiety and a big effect on just yes. a general uh, alleviation of angst. That's a good example of something I know I should do, yeah. and yet. <laughs> Is that a discipline issue? Uh, I used to be kind of disciplined, but. What happened? I've been using it a lot to, uh, you know, to do things like uh, I, I really want to do, like writing or making music and. So those are the, the things that kind of – I know I should, like, do the exercise too so I can do more of that longer. <laughs> yeah. Do you think you have a finite amount of discipline? Uh, possibly each person has, a, you know, the fine, has that sort of uh, anxiety quotient, that discipline quotient uh, that we kind of uh, – you probably can work that like a muscle. And build yeah, up. I would imagine you can. Yeah. Yeah, you could become – something different okay. my, me and my friends did this thing that we did uh last year uh called sober october for the entire month you know no alcohol no marijuana no drugs and crazy exercise like last year we had a competition to see like who could exercise the most we wore these heart rate monitors and we we measured points like uh, you get a certain amount of points at 80 percent of your max heart rate per minute but what my point is one of the things that I got out of this, and we all got out of it, we all talked about it because we were exercising hours and hours a day, an incredible alleviation of anxiety. Mm. Incredible. Mm-hmm. Like to the point, I, I exercise regularly, but I don't exercise at that level. Mm-hmm. That that level that we were doing because we were in this competition was really a lot of cardio. Mm-hmm. But my God, that runner's high is real. Yeah. I felt amazing. I mean, I felt like so good all the time. The alleviation of angst was unlike anything. The internal chatter yeah. that sort of can fuck with your head, yeah. that just didn't exist anymore. Well, I think that that's wonderful that you're saying that because you have so many followers, and I think that's such fantastic information to convey to them. It is, and it's so available to all of yes. us. I mean, anybody that can move their body can experience this. And I, I don't 
recommend what we did because we were right. working out five hours, six hours. A but day even plus. you know, I walk. I live in New York, so I walk a lot. And, That's uh, great, yeah. right? You have to. <laughs> yes, but I mean, just that alone yeah. is it's. There's many people that don't walk. You know, you just sit here and then you move to that spot. You right. sit there and you get in the car. You sit there. Yep. You get on the train. You sit there. And there's very little use of the body, and the body starts to atrophy. Yep. By pumping that blood through the system and cleaning out the pipes and getting that air into the lungs and forcing yourself to move, when it's over, you feel better. I'm breathing better already. I just feel <laughs> it, right? I'm, I'm imagining it. I'm imagining this exercise. Um, what do you take? What about nature? Do you, do you take any time in nature at all? Do you go to Central Park? Oh, well, we have a house up in Sullivan County in the Catskills. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. How often do you get a chance to get out there? Uh, we spend a lot of time there in the summer. Oh, that's great. And do you, you feel up. better when you're up there? Yeah, definitely. Interesting, right? Yeah, it takes a couple of days to like you know get into the rhythm. Yeah. But then it's good. But once you do... Do you ever think, man, what the fuck am I doing living in Manhattan with all these buildings? Uh, no, I get that. You know, my wife and I, she, my wife's a New Yorker, so I'm by birth. So I, a week there, we need, we need to go in and <laughs> <laughs> then yeah. we want to come back. Yeah, my friend right. Jeff has a, uh, a place on Fire Island. Mm -hmm. and it's a beautiful he, place. He, beautiful. And he lives in Manhattan as well. But he says, like, as he's oh, gotten Brooklyn, older. But, uh, oh, you're in Brooklyn. Yeah. He says, as he's gotten older, he really don't doesn't think that he could live in Manhattan anymore if it wasn't for this ability to escape right. and go somewhere and just uh, wake up in the morning, look out, see the ocean, have yeah. a cup of coffee. <sighs> Moving to Brooklyn was kind of like that, getting out of Manhattan. Yeah. yeah I don't know. That, if you don't live in New York, that may not make a lot of sense to Explain you. Explain to people what the difference is. So, you know, you, Manhattan is just like it's, it's supercharged all the time, and it's not a it's not a trite thing. It's you, you know you, it's it's a true thing that you once you get out of Manhattan, everything is just a, a notch down. Yeah, and uh, hive. Step, step off the subway, and you kind of feel a little bit more relaxed. Do you think that's because Brooklyn? I mean, it's just speculative, but there's still a lot of people in Brooklyn. Yeah, but there's no skyscrapers. Few. I mean, there's starting to be lots of tall buildings and oh, stuff. Yeah? But, what's uh, like a tall building in Brooklyn? Like 30. 30, right. Not Residences, like, you know. What's Manhattan? Like 80s. There's oh, like yeah. 80s and 90s. Yeah, and right. There's some giant buildings. I looked out the other day, uh, I guess from the airplane, and there's something in North Manhattan that looks like it's way above the Empire State Building in yeah. terms of size. I, I don't know what that is. But, <laughs> <laughs> but th th have you thought about that existence like um in terms of like how unnatural it is and how recent it is this ability to jam untold millions right. like how many people are in manhattan oh boy you know i have no idea like i think eight million or something in new york city but probably like and then four of course million, so. commuters as well yeah. so eight million plus all the people that come in from the different places to work there yep. and just stuffed into an incredibly small area and stacked on top of each other yeah that has got to be completely new psychological state for the human animal right yeah there was just i remember when i first got into um, psychology i was reading something about something called a behavioral sink um it was about how rats living in an impoverished environment under highly crowded conditions their behavioral repertoire sort of like diminished a lot so mm. i think that was you know, sort of used to kind of challenge urban living and to blame a lot of urban decay in the 70s uh, on 
Uh, I don't think it was necessarily a good idea, but uh, it, it was kind of a, a way to explain some things that I think it wasn't really good at explaining. You know, it's true that, that the people do live under fairly crowded conditions, but um, that's, you, know, you can't explain everything in terms of very simple processes. Are you aware of the studies that they did where they set cameras up on streets and they, they set them a distance apart and they measured footsteps, how fast people walked, and then they measured the way people talk, how many syllables and how many sentences they can get in in a certain amount of time. And through uh, measuring footsteps and how fast people walked and the way they talked, they could accurately determine how big the city was that they lived in. Uh, interesting. How many, yeah. They, they could accurately <clears throat> figure out whether or not they lived in a high population density, whether or not they lived in a small town, uh -huh. by the way they talked and the way they walked. Interesting. That there's a profound effect. Mm. I, have a, a I used to have a colleague at NYU named John Barge, who's at Yale now, and he used to do these studies where he would uh, – he was a social psychologist. He would have people uh, come in – students uh, come into the lab and take these letters and they were like scrambled – and he'd have to like they'd have to um, unscramble them in, into sentences. I guess it was words, and you'd have to unscramble them and put them into a sentence. And if the unscrambled sentence was about being older and elderly, anything about being elderly in uh, age, um, it would take the students longer to walk down the hallway to get to the elevator afterwards. As it's like activating this kind of schema of of aging top-down had some kind of uh, effect on the way you walk. That, well, that makes sense. And you do see, what's really interesting to me is when you see the differences between people who are the same age who behave and think very differently. And I always wonder how much of that is biological, how much of that is psychological, how much of that is like, well, this person just has uh, a better genetic makeup, you know, and so they've, you know, in their 50s, they still have tons of energy, whereas right. this person maybe has a shit makeup and bad lifestyle choices, and they look like what we considered, you know, an old man when we were younger. Right. Well, I mean, we're all so complicated, and there's so many factors that go into, yeah. you know, shaping how we end up at any point in our life. Where do you think selfishness came from? Autonoetic consciousness. So that's this ability to put yourself into an experience, which as I said earlier, is responsible for our greatest achievements as a species, but also is um, what will potentially do us in. It allows us to not only envision a world in which, you know, we can be selfless, self, you know, not selfish, but help others, but also how to exclude others. And um, it, I think it's a natural, basic animal instinct to... Uh, stay alive, obviously. You know, we've, uh, Richard Dawkins said the theory of the selfish gene. Uh, animals are incredibly selfish in, you know, in their struggle for existence. So that kind of um, automatic selfishness is there. But what the autonoetic mind allows us to do is to be intentionally, willfully selfish, to allow us to choose to do these things uh, uh, for our own personal good. For example, I think that the, the autonoetic human, human mind is the only entity in the history of life that's been ever to put the organism, now we're talking about the conscious mind being a small part of the, what's going on in the cortex, to put 
all of the rest of the brain and all of the body at risk for the simple sake of a thrill. Mountain mm. climbing, um, you know, swimming in, in shark-infested waters or taking drugs at dangerous levels. Um, no other organism can commit suicide in the sense of intentionally planning to put an end to an entity that it knows has the, the possible end. So our conscious minds are special uh, in good ways and bad ways. Yeah, the conscious mind that seeks thrills, what do you think is the root of that? Like, I've always wondered, like, why certain people are drawn to doing, like, flips on motorcycles or certain people are drawn to climbing mountains with no ropes. Like, what do you think that is? You know, I'm just guessing. I, I don't really know. But I think that we each have these kind of physiological uh, states that, that we try to maintain. You know, some kind of, our homeostatic levels are, are different. Um, and some people need a little more adrenaline or a little more, um, you know, I, I hate to use adrenaline in the kind of uh, um, cheap way of, you know, just saying, it's just it need more of a rush or kind of yeah. body activity um, because all of that also affects the brain. Um, and so consciously, um, you strive, you may go looking for those kinds of things to get the rush. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it's, a, it's sort of on the spectrum of addiction in a sense where mm. you need that, that physiological change that the drug induces. But, you know, we also have addictions in our lives that are habits and things that, uh, that we develop and pursue that aren't necessarily good for us, but that we kind of feel compelled to do. Do you know who Alex Honnold is? Right, yeah. Yeah, I've had him on the podcast a couple right. of times, and every time I talk to him, my hands start getting sweaty. <laughs> <laughs> I get so nervous. Uh, for folks who don't know who we're talking about, he's uh, the uh, probably the most famous free solo climber in the world. And he climbs these seemingly impossible mountains with no ropes. And there's video of him doing it, like this drone footage of him climbing these peaks, and my hands just start pouring <laughs> sweat when I just watch it. But when I talk to him, what's really interesting is he's a calm, rational, intelligent man who's very thoughtful, and he's he's a very kind guy. Mm -hmm. he, he doesn't seem like some... You know, I think of when I think of someone who likes to do flips off with a motorcycle or do uh, radical. I think of some crazy, wild thrill seeker, uh, some some dude who just needs to constantly, uh, or a woman who needs to be constantly freaked out. He's not that guy. Yeah. And when he describes it, what's really interesting is he goes, "It's very mellow." He's like, "If there's any, if there's really a thrill, I've done something horribly wrong." Like the, the mm -hmm. real thrills mm -hmm. are so scary because that means you're about to die. So he's instead of getting the thrill, he's getting that peace. Yeah, but he's getting a peace from putting himself at extreme right. risk. Okay. And there's also the thing of other people praising you for your risk taking, which is an odd thing about humans. And they've they've shown through natural, uh, well, that there's a, a natural selection aspect of it with females and mates that females are attracted to men that do those crazy things and take crazy risks for some strange reason 
whether it's some sort of a remnant of our ancient past, like that thrill-seeking man is not going to be, uh, he's not going to shy away from combat. He will protect our children or something like that. Right. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of evolutionary psychology. Yeah. And, you know, that a lot of that is speculative, of yes, course. And, uh, of course. But it's the thrill seeker is uh, it's one it's one of the weirder things when everything's great and you have plenty of food and you live in right. cities and like okay look I'm not getting enough juice here yeah. I'm gonna have to <laughs> learn how to hand glide or something you know and yeah some people may do it for attention or yes yeah the things people do for attention um, creativity. Is uh, that that to me is one of the more interesting aspects of being a human being? So our ability to create things and our desire to create things, and in, in a way that's also along the same lines, right? Because you're getting rewarded right. for it. Well, probably, yeah. So I mean, all these things are as a child is is developing and growing up and passing through different kinds of situations in life. Um, I think a lot of stuff happens kind of randomly, you know, so the, the child may do something that someone views as creative. And so, as you said, the child is rewarded for mm. that. So then that allows them to figure out what, you know, explore kind of how they did that and, and maybe continue to do it. But other people may simply have minds that uh, go in that direction um, on their own, where, as, a, as we talked about earlier, their their thoughts are able to jump across conceptual categories and, and uh, sort of transcend those categories into new, completely new ideas and so forth. And, you know, I don't think we know how the brain does that at all. That's a, a very good question for the future, but it's not something we have a great deal of understanding of uh, now. I mean, there could be an area of research on it that I just don't know about. It's a big field. Um, but uh, I certainly don't know the answer to how creativity comes about. Well, it's interesting, too. Creativity has a, a, a reward system built in for the person who creates, even even without recognition from others. Right. There's some fundamentally satisfying feeling of creating something. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Well, novelty is rewarding, not reinforcing. You know, it's a, and certainly creativity is novelty. It's like anything that is novel uh, that you do has a kind of you know, charge effect to it, I would think. Yeah, I mean, it's people like you who study this stuff, to me, are so important because most of us are just banging into walls, just trying to figure out why we do what we do. Yeah. And to have... Uh, an ability to understand the scientific explanations for the various things that are at play. It's, it's so, it's so critical because you can kind of like almost not necessarily stop the process, but at least be aware of it while it's going down. Mm -hmm. Is that part of what you wanted to do when you were writing? Well, I want to thank you for, um, <laughs> you know, crediting me for that. But the, um, it, you know, a lot of what we've been talking about, we've just been having a conversation. My work is very rather limited and all. I don't work on creativity and all these things. So I'm kind but you of, work on the way the mind works. I work on, yeah. I mean, um, I think about how the, work, the mind works, but I work on how the brain detects and responds to danger. Uh, so that allows me to go back to my early work on consciousness and to bring it in and layer it on top of uh, all that other stuff. But, yeah, it's, um, you know, I I get 
tremendous uh, value out of sitting there writing. And because when you start a book, in my case, I think this is probably true of many people. You don't you have no idea how you're going to get to the end. You know, you have a beginning and you just see where it goes. So this idea of writing a proposal that lays out the whole thing to me doesn't work because you just don't know where it's going. And um, the fun part is getting to the end. The brain reacting to danger. Do you did you did you do any interviews with people who are soldiers or inter- interview fighters or people that are involved in extreme activities? That yeah, no, I haven't. Uh, I haven't done a lot of interviews. Um, I mean, I have talked to people like that, and um, you know, every individual cases are interesting because they give you stuff, but it's not data. So the, right. the data you have to go out and collect. Yeah. What do you got there for notes? You got a pile of notes there. Did you oh, I don't know. You want to discuss? Uh, I, I just thought, uh, just brought this. I think we covered most of what I want to say. Yeah, the amygdala is not a fear center. Behavior is not primarily a tool of the mind. It's a tool of survival. We think we know why we do the things we do and others do them, but uh, we don't really because we, our conscious mind is not privy to all of the the things that the body and brain are doing. Now, when you wanted to examine danger and you want to examine the mind and how it reacts to danger and fear and threats, what what were you trying to get out of this? Well, I started out thinking this was a way to study emotion. And um, at the time, I'd been studying these these, uh, human patients with split brain surgery. And... Can you explain that? Because you, you, you oh, glossed sure. over that yeah. earlier, but the split brain surgery is alleviation of epilepsy? It's a way to control epilepsy that can't be controlled in any other way. Medications are not working. So you have like young kids, teenagers that have lived most of their life uh, just paralyzed by epilepsy and not being able to lead a life. Uh, there was one patient who basically his parents were constantly having to hold him down on a mattress he was seizing so often. Mm. So, and this is not, this is only done in a, uh, in a very extreme set of conditions, and it's not done that much anymore. But when it's done, <clears throat> it's, um, the connections between the two sides of the brain are, are separated. So information on one side doesn't cross over to the other. How do they do that? Uh, they open up the skull, pull the two, you know, you've got kind of two loaves of bread sitting next to each other and they're connected by threads which are axons that go between them and so you pull apart here and you can see where those axons are when you open up from the top so imagine like a hot dog bun okay Uh, and so you open it up at the top and you can look down in the center and imagine that there was like a a bunch of uh, wires crossing between the two sides of the bun So those wires would then be uh, surgically sectioned. And so now you end up with two sides of the brain separate and independent. So typically language is on the left side, so you can talk to that side. The right side doesn't have language, um, so you have to ask, well, what can it do? So if you present a stimulus that only the right hemisphere sees, and you do that by flashing, say, a picture of an apple on the left side of space, because everything to the left of center goes to the right hemisphere and everything to the right of center goes to the left hemisphere. So you send a stimulus to the right hemisphere 
And you say, what did you see? And the left hemisphere answers, because that's where the language is. He says, I didn't see anything. So, okay, you say, reach into this bag and see what's in there. If the right hand goes in, that's connected to the left hemisphere, can't find it. The left hand goes in, connected to the right hemisphere, which saw the apple, it pulls out the apple. Wow. So the right hemisphere has information that the left hemisphere can't talk about. What is life like for people once they've done that operation? Uh, well, slowly, it, the left hemisphere kind of comes to dominate again. And uh, the, uh, you know, they, they come to live with it. And how does it prevent seizures? Well, the, the folklore of it, I don't know if this is actually true, but what is often said is that it prevents the seizures from jumping back and forth. Uh, and having, you know, because the, um, the electrical activity jumping back and forth sort of gets into a kind of an endless loop that can't stop. But cutting that isolates the seizures in the two hemispheres and makes each one more controllable by taking a medication. Jesus. So. Imagine being the first guy to try that out. Yeah, really. <laughs> I got an idea. <laughs> Let's split your brain like a hot dog bun. <laughs> so... Um, but it, it, what we were interested in, in in these patients that we were studying, my, this was my mentor, Michael Gazaniga, um, and I were, were studying these at uh, Dartmouth Medical School. We were at Stony Brook out on Long Island. We would drive up to Dartmouth to see these patients. Um, was How does the left hemisphere cope with the fact that the right hemisphere has performed a behavior that the, it, the left hemisphere that you talked to, didn't commend? Mm. So we would you know, put information in the right hemisphere. The guy would stand up say, why'd you do that? I needed to stretch. Or, you know, if he scratched his hand, he'd say, oh, I had an itch, so I needed to, to scratch it. And so time after time, the left hemisphere would generate a narrative that made its behavior make sense. Oh, wow. So that's why I got interested in how non-conscious systems would be generating behaviors that we, ha we generate narratives to explain. Because at the time uh, that we were doing this, the idea of cognitive dissonance was very popular. Mm. And what that means is that when cognitively, when you do something behaviorally that is incongruent with what you cognitively know, it's disturbing, it causes dissonance. And so you have to engage in some kind of dissonance reduction. So our hypothesis was these narratives that the left hemisphere is generating about right hemisphere behaviors was a way of, of the left hemisphere's conscious mind um, kind of keeping it all together. The, the consciousness thinks that it's in charge, that you know, the brain and body are its, you know, it's, uh, it's the, the, the control center and everything else is uh, there to, to satisfy its whims. And so it generates these narratives to keep that sense of unity going, even though it's no longer unified. That is so fascinating that the brain tries to seek some sort of an explanation for the actions that you've provoked right. externally. And that's why I got into emotion, because, well, maybe emotion systems produce these. You got something, Jamie? Yeah, when I'm looking this up, uh, alien hand syndrome came up. 
Do you know anything about this? I don't. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. It's a, there's a long article explaining this thing called alien hand syndrome and also known as Dr. Strangelove syndrome. <laughs> uh, picture of Dr. Strangelove. The explanations are very strange about people's hands doing something that they're not explaining. Right. They don't so know it's why kind of, did it's it. It's kind or, of the same. Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, do they generate oh, wow. an explanation when they do that? So it, it just explains different uh, scenarios people yeah. have had, like a leg walk in the wrong direction right, or right. Uh, sh- buttoning up your shirt with your left hand. Right. The right hand starts unbuttoning That it. seems to be like some sort of a neurological problem. Well, split brain patients would you know they right after surgery when things are really like fucked up squirrely they would be like pulling the pants down with one hand and pulling them up with the other oh wow so there's one patient i saw in the hospital the young kid the left hand reaches out to grab the nurse on the ass can i say that yeah (laughs) and the right hand is pulling it back oh my god Oh my God! So there's like a physical struggle. Uh, yeah, there's like this, and you know, and it all kind of like over time, they don't come back together, but some, they negotiate something where it's not so dramatic. The woman who thinks her alien hand wants her to be a better person. <laughs> yeah. See, okay. I'm thinking these are some sort of physiological. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it's uh, what a crazy solution to epilepsy. I know there's other solutions that, but that that is that is a last ditch effort. Yeah. And so for severe, severe cases. Yeah. And I th- do those people it's not done that often. to eventually sort of achieve some sort of a, a normalization? Yeah. Um, you know, they've lived, the kids have lived so long in the state by the time they get their, their uh, brains changed like that that uh, I don't know really ultimately – uh, what what became of all these people because I, I moved on to other fields and um, but I, I think in general they live a, a somewhat better life but I doubt they ever live a completely full normal life I mean how could you after all that but I'm really interested in the the the, the brain creating these narratives to explain yeah that's cause there, there's so many people that do things like that yeah. Right, they'll try to explain their life away and give themselves excuses and give themselves reasons for behavior. And one of the things you see with the more rational people is it's never their fault; right. it's always someone else's fault. Well, that's the four billion year story that I yes. tell. You know, how we gener- how we got to these narratives. That's what it's all about. Wow! Listen, man, this is amazing stuff. Um, please tell everybody your books, um, where they can get them, how they can find them. Are they available in audio as well? Right. Yeah. So the, the new book is called The Deep History of Ourselves, The Four Billion Year Story of How We Got Conscious Brains. And you can get that on Amazon. You can get the Audible on audible.com. You know, Barnes and I think all the, the major uh, booksellers have the, the books. Um, last book was Anxious. Uh, it also has an Audible version. I always wanted to get like Christopher Walken to do my Why don't auto. you do it? <laughs> Did you not, not do it? Uh, no, I didn't do it. Uh, they they didn't ask me. I mean, they... Yeah. I would want you to do it. Yeah. It's your work. Right. I, I get bummed out when someone else reads. <laughs> like one of the th- good things about like Pinker and Gladwell, they read their own books. Uh-huh. Like uh, they've never offered it to me. You should. Uh, you should demand next it. time. Next demand time. Demand it. Well, for my for my memoir, I'll definitely. Uh, oh, there you go. <laughs> Have to. Well, thank you for being here. I really, really appreciate it. And thanks. Thanks, thanks for all your work. Can I just say one thing? Yes, yeah. please. Uh, so sometimes I. Um, when I release books, I also release music to go with them. So Anxious had a, a record with it, and uh, Deep History has some songs of life that are on the deephistory.com website. With oh, that's too. cool. So you are you are a musician. Yeah. You were bringing that up before. Right, yeah. I got, got a couple of bands and 
A couple bands. Well, the the main band is uh, the Amygdaloids. <laughs> Amygdaloids.com. Oh, that's awesome. And you know, it's a rock band. We we created our own uh, genre: heavy mental <laughs> <laughs> songs about it. mind and brain and mental disorders. They're love songs, but most rock songs are love songs about mental disorders, anyway. So. Yes. Yeah, you're just being. And then more an acoustic specific. duo, so we are, which is a lot easier to get around without drums and amps and stuff. It's two acoustic guitars. Awesome. And we play the acoustic uh, versions of the amygdaloids. All right. Well, thank you, Joe. Appreciate thank it. Thank you. Man. Thanks it's for been being fun. here. Thanks. Thank you. Oh, that was great. That was fun.